This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. What I want to do as we get started is take you to a passage of Scripture. It's very familiar. It comes out of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is asked the question, how do we pray? How do we pray? And then in response with this, this then is how you should pray. And after that, he's going to pray what theologians call the model prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that we pray in many cultural circumstances. For many of us, it's familiar. So I'm going to ask you to read along today as we share this moment. Read along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In that prayer, there's a lot of things that are there that we often miss. We, we, we pray it, and we, we don't realize what we're praying. How many of y'all are, are aware of the fact, but maybe haven't thought critically about the fact that we pray, God, forgive me the way that I forgive those who sin against me? which basically means that we're praying and saying, God, would you keep me on the curve of the way that I treat other people? I'm so glad that God doesn't grade us on the same curve that we grade other people on, right? It's really setting the standard, the model, the goal of our existence, that we would love and live like Jesus loved and lived, that we would forgive and, and forgive freely. But in there, there's a phrase that I think is important, and it's really what this whole series is about. If you'll look at it, it's in verse 10. It says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's a reality which is at the center of the message of Jesus, that we live in a spiritual kingdom where God's desire is that in this moment, as we live today, that we would live in a kingdom that extends far beyond what we see and what we understand. As a matter of fact, some of the very first things that Jesus said dealt with this in the Gospel of Mark, which was the first gospel that's written, the very first chapter in verse 15, the first thing that Jesus says is the time has come, the kingdom of God has come, so repent and believe the good news. The good news, that word good news literally means gospel. And so a lot of times when we talk about the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, while there is grace in the gospel, there is love in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus was all about a kingdom. It was all about a kingdom. Jesus preached the gospel of a kingdom. And the Many of us just don't understand kingdom. We, we don't get kingdom because we don't live in a kingdom. We, we don't live with a king. We, don't, we live in a democracy. And so we're slightly unfamiliar with the terminology that Jesus was using in the first century. But we're aware of 
kind of what it means to be a part of a government. And here's what I can tell you is that being, belonging to a kingdom comes with both responsibilities and benefits. Just like for us, we understand being a citizen of the United States comes with both responsibilities. We pay taxes, but there are benefits that we're offered and afforded freedoms and protection. which is, I think, connected so much to the ideas that Jesus is going to present to us throughout the gospel. That's why in Matthew 6, notice the language here. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things he has just talked about, provision and blessings, all of these things will be added and given to you as well. Seek first, though, the kingdom of God, which means if our greatest desire is the kingdom of God, he will provide for us more than we could ever ask, dream, or imagine if our greatest desire is the kingdom of God. But we get that wrong, don't we? So many times. Our greatest desire becomes a relationship or a thing. And what happens in our hearts is our hearts shift from the creator to the creation. And we start to, instead of long and desire the creator, we start to long and desire created things. So it's important to be reminded when we're talking about kingdom that everything that we see or know or understand, all of this world belongs to him. It's represented in Psalm 24 where it says, the the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. So living in The kingdom of God means that we start with the foundational understanding that this world that we're living in belongs to him. Everything that we have, the money in our bank account, the houses we live, everything, even relationships, the people that God has put in our lives, even our kids, they all belong to God, not us. And that totally changes our perspective of life. Now, I want to give you a big idea that we're going to spend the rest of this talk kind of expanding, okay? Look at this. How we embrace the kingdom of God matters more than what we do for God. How we embrace the kingdom of God matters more than what we do for God. Think about this with me. The, the how represents our attitudes, our, our personal culture, the way that we navigate life. And the what is our actions or our deeds. Like it's our behavior. And here's what I know to be true, that we can do the right thing the wrong way, and it becomes the wrong thing. We, we can try to forgive and say, I forgive you, but with the wrong attitude, it becomes the wrong thing because the wrong attitude doesn't release the offense. It still holds on to the offense, and it becomes the wrong thing because it builds bitterness in our hearts. We can give, but we can give out of duty and obligation, not out of generosity and joy, and it becomes something that we feel is taking from us, not giving to us. It's not a blessing or an opportunity to give. It's a duty, and it's something that is lowering my standard of living because I'm giving something that really is mine. 
the, the right thing with the wrong attitude becomes the wrong thing. See, how we do something is as important as what we are doing. And some of us have lived in a culture when it comes to understanding Jesus where we have focused so much on behavior that we haven't focused on attitude. And here's the truth. The kingdom of God is much more about attitude than it is about behavior. Because if we get the heart right, the behavior follows in tune. Which is why I think in Philippians 2, this discourse on the, the perspective of what Jesus did for us that begins in verse 5 begins this way. Have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This, that's a command, if you pay attention to it. Not, not a suggestion that you should embrace the same attitudes that Jesus had. If we're going to embrace the kingdom of God, we've got to examine our attitude so much so that I'd say this today, that a kingdom culture is built upon the attitudes displayed by Jesus. If we're going to live inside of the kingdom of God, we have to live in its culture, and its culture is demonstrated for us in the kingdom, in the, the kingdom principles that are on display through the attitudes of Jesus. So what I'm going to do today is talk about several sets of attitudes. Now, these sets of attitudes are a little counterintuitive because I'm going to pair some ideas that seem to be especially culturally opposed to each other. But I want you to see how they're not. They're not separate. They're actually joined together. They, these things go together. The first one is sacrifice and generosity. This is where we, we really blow our understanding of generosity culturally because we think that generosity comes out of abundance, but that's not generosity. Oh, we can give out of abundance, but that's not generosity. Generosity is always born out of sacrifice. Generosity is always born out of sacrifice, which is why Jesus watching the collection in the temple, when he sees the widow drop a, a very small offering compared to the large sums that were dropped by wealthy men who had come before. He says, yo, everybody pause. She, she just outgave everybody. And they're like, what? No way. She gave way less. And they're like, she's like, no, no. no. The, the, the point is she gave everything. She sacrificed. To this is what generosity looks like. There's a sacrifice associated. Now, that doesn't mean that giving out of abundance isn't a bad, it's a bad thing. No, it's a good thing. But generosity, real biblical generosity is born out of sacrifice. There's a, a really harsh story that Jesus tells. And, and if we put it in our culture, we truly do not understand it. It's in Luke chapter 12. It, it's called theologically the parable of the rich fool. Now, I don't know if you know this, but you can be foolish and poor, and you can be foolish and wealthy. And this one ends tragically. Jesus is teaching a congregation that would have understood 
terms that had to do with agriculture, much like we live in uh, a county that has a lot of agriculture, so we would understand this. There was a farmer who, who planted his crops, and at the end of the season, during the, the harvest, his harvest is a bumper harvest. It, it is is amazing the amount that they are harvesting. When they're bringing all this stuff in, they just, they just don't have places to store it. Imagine at the end of the month, if when you went to check your pay stub, you got paid twice as much as expected. You got, I mean, norm, your normal paycheck was literally doubled. This, that's what this man is experiencing. What was anticipated is far exceeding what, you know, is, 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 or what is happening is far exceeding what was anticipated. This is a huge harvest. And so he says to himself, great, let's build bigger barns. Let's build bigger barns to store up all these things that have, have come in. Let, let's, let's take this harvest and store it away. Now here's the reality that when we live in the kingdom, we understand God owns everything. So when we're blessed, we understand that we're blessed to be a blessing. But what would you do? What would you do if you found out that your check had doubled at the end of the month? I'll tell you what most of us would do. We'd be like, we're going on a vacation. We're taking a week off. We are booking a cruise, y'all. It's going to be good. Okay? That's exactly what this man did. He's blessed, and he says, we're, gonna, we're just going to take this, we're going to build bigger barns so that we can store it. And God steps in and speaks as Jesus is ter- telling this parable and says, you wicked man, tonight you will die. It's exceptionally harsh, especially in our culture, because we think, well, well he worked hard for that. He planted the seed. Didn't he deserve that? No, he was blessed to be a blessing. He was blessed to be a blessing. And this is what Jesus concludes that teaching with. This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. I mean, we should think of the blessings that we receive in life as an opportunity to bless others. When there's abundance, we shouldn't be looking at what can we do for ourselves. We should be asking the question, God, what do you want me to do with this? How can I make your kingdom a better place? How can your kingdom come to earth through this blessing? But so often we're doing it. And you know what's funny? is so many of y'all are going, but, but what about retirement? But what, but what about what we're going to eat next week or, or planning for next month or maybe getting ahead a little bit financially? You know what's interesting is exactly where Jesus goes after he tells his parable. Look at the very next verse. Do not be afraid, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, in this moment, Jesus is showing us why God's plan for generosity is in place for us. 
It's to protect your heart. See, when we become generous inside of the blessings that God has given us, what happens, it redirects our heart. Our heart will follow our treasure. It's not the other way around. And we make an outward decision that then creates an inward reality. And God wants you to be invested in the kingdom of God, to sacrifice so that your family can be invested in the kingdom. And he wants that for you so that it will direct your heart towards him. Which is why real sacrifice looks like that family that says, you know what, we're going to cut off cable so that we can sponsor a couple kids through Children's Cup. You know what, we're going we're gonna to cut out going out to eat so that we can increase the percentage that we give to the kingdom of God. We're going to make this sacrifice. It's not out of our abundance. It's out of sacrifice that generosity is born. Because a kingdom culture, a person living in the kingdom, embraces sacrifice and generosity. Not only do they do that, but they live with number two, peace, contentment, and joy. Peace, contentment, and joy. And many of us, as, as we've tried to define the kingdom of God, this way of Jesus, the life that God wants to live in us, we've defined it through behaviors. We've defined it through what you do and what you don't do and who you do it with. But the Attitudes of our heart posture us in our relationship with God. And if we have the wrong attitude, there's really something wrong going on inside of our hearts. See, just to remind you again, the right thing done with the wrong attitude becomes the wrong thing. The right thing done with the wrong attitude becomes the wrong thing. Which is why God's not necessarily after your behavior. He's after your heart. Because when he gets your heart, the behavior takes care of itself. He wants your attitudes because when he gets your attitudes and he gets the personal culture that you're living in, when you finally start living in the culture of the kingdom of God, your behavior takes care of itself. And a lot of times we have mistakenly tried to identify the culture of the kingdom by what we do and don't do. This was an early debate among the church because as Gentiles were included into the body of Christ, there was a lot of questions. What do we eat? What do we not eat? And look at this. This is so amazing. Romans 14, verse 7. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. No, let's, let, let's focus on the attitude of saying, God, I, I want to be the right person, the, the person you designed me. To, God, I, I want to be submissive to that. God, God I want to live with peace. I want to live with joy. And when we think about contentment, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, writing towards the end of his letter to young Timothy, 
makes this statement, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Now to spend a moment kind of expanding that, I want you to look at this. Godliness is the desire to be like God, to become the person that Christ wants you to be, to grow in your pursuit of becoming more Christ-like and putting Christ at the center of everything, to live in the kingdom of God. And so writing to Timothy, the apostle Paul says, listen, there is great gain, great gain, when you become content. Your, your pursuit of that, of that, that, that living in the kingdom, embracing the attitude of the kingdom, embracing the culture, there is great, not just one step forward, lots of steps forward when you can embrace the culture of contentment. When you can look at God and say, God, I trust you. Everything I have is what I need. If I don't have it, I don't need it because you've promised to provide for all of my needs according to your riches and glory. See, it all comes back to trust. And there's no way to live in the kingdom of God without trusting him to be a good king and to take care of you. As a matter of fact, let me just break these down. I want you to see this. Peace is trusting in God's deliverance. Peace is trusting in. You, you, what do we pray in the, in, in the Lord's Prayer? Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. Do, do you realize that it's not just the evil that's in the world, it's the evil that's in you, the evil that's been associated with your own behaviors that we're praying, God, deliver, deliver me. Peace is believing and trusting that God will deliver you. That's peace. Contentment is trusting in God's provision. Think about that prayer again. Give me today my daily bread. Not tomorrow's bread, not three months from now, not 10 years from now, just today. God, just take care of today. Provide for today. Right? Contentment is trusting in God's provision. And joy is trusting in God's goodness. Because he is a good king who has taken all of his wealth and resources to leverage them on your behalf so that you can be reconciled to the Father. See, a good king provides for his people and delivers them from their enemy, and that's the kind of king that we serve. So because of that, we can live with peace, contentment, and joy. And the last two, so important, so important, are humility and honor. Humility and honor. And I tell you what, if we can get these two right, so many times we think these things are disconnected, that humility is one thing and, and honor is another one, honoring people and then being honored yourself, that it's impossible to be honored and be humble at the same time. I, I want you to understand, the, these two things are deeply connected in the Scripture. We see this in Philippians 2 and describes the attitude of Jesus. Pay attention to this. Have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, that though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be clung to or to cling to. He humbled himself in obedience to God. He humbled himself. He humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor. And he gave him the name above all other names. I want you to get this. One thing that will keep you outside 
of the kingdom of God, always looking in, always wondering, where are the benefits? Why am I not living in the promises of God as pride? It'll keep you outside of the kingdom all the time. And pride, pride comes in many forms, but for many of us, it's just simply thinking that our way is better than God's way. Pride will keep you outside of the kingdom. What's just weird about this is that our culture teaches us that pride is a virtue, that, that it is a good thing. But all throughout Scripture, pride or is, is depicted as sin. It's depicted as something that takes our hearts and drags our hearts away from the intentions of God. I think that's why James 4 puts it this way, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Notice that God opposes the proud. There are some of your lives that have experienced in certain areas of your life, you just have constantly felt like there was opposition. God's just, I always feel like I'm experiencing this, and this is hard, and this is hard, and this is hard. And it really is, it's the fact that you won't humble yourself in that area. And you're experiencing the opposition of God, which is merciful and loving because God is trying to correct you. There's no disobedience that is pleasurable at the time, but it does yield for us a harvest of righteousness and peace. See, humility aligns our hearts with his and gives him ultimate authority. Pride assumes ultimate authority. Pride takes authority over our lives, over our perceptions, over our thoughts. It decides what's right and wrong, good and bad. That's what pride does. But humility submits to God and says, God, whatever you say, whatever you direct me to, that's good. Whatever you point me to, that's good. Humility lets God call the shots, and because he does, it aligns our hearts with his. Humility does so much good in us. I just want to spend a moment talking about humility will protect you from becoming offended because humility keeps you from having an overinflated view of yourself. That's where offense comes from. Is that you think too much of yourself and someone insults you in an area of perhaps weakness. You become offended. I love what Brendan Manning said. Brendan Manning said, a man who fully knows himself can never be offended. For if someone was to say, you are a drunkard and you are a drunkard, you would agree. And if someone were to say you are a drunkard and you are not, then you would know who you are. Humility protects you from becoming offended. Humility postures you to learn and be shaped. Humility sits us at the feet of Jesus and says, God, it is not my life. It is not my way. Shape me, teach me, mold me. I'm yours. 
which means it acknowledges that we haven't arrived, we need to grow, we need to get better. And the way to that is through the discipline and redirection of Jesus. So because of that, humility postures you or positions you to be used by God. It positions you to be used by God. Because God is growing you, developing you, changing you, and all of that, because all of that is working out inside of your heart, God is preparing you to be used. And as he uses you, humility does something remarkable. Humility prepares you to share in his glory. And that's a promise for those of us who chase after the kingdom, that we will get to share in the glory of Christ Jesus. But that word glory, one of the original meanings of that word is weight. In the scriptures, the, the weight of glory. If you know anything about integrity, you know that Buildings in their structural integrity can only withstand a certain amount of weight. And what happens is as humility begins to work in our lives, it literally increases the internal integrity so that we can withstand the glory of God. There are some of you that right now, if you were to experience the glory of God, your pride could not take it. You are not prepared. But humility prepares us to experience the glory of God. So notice what James 4 says. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will, he will exalt you. Not you. You don't even have to do it. You never have to play a role in that. God will exalt you. God will take care of that. This is the way Jesus lived, constantly going down the ladder, never going up the ladder. Which means, if you pay attention to that, humble yourselves means that's a choice. It's a choice that you can make. So you can choose to be humble or humiliated. The word humiliated, the original origin of that word was to be made humble. And our choice in life really is to humble ourselves under the authority of Jesus or be humiliated as we try to resist him. See, Jesus, when it came to humility and pride, Jesus never went up the ladder. Jesus went down the ladder. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He got down on his feet and washed the feet of those in, in, in the posture of a servant that he, he had as followers, loving them and serving them in such a way that was going down the ladder, not up. So I see this about a humble heart, that a humble heart easily gives honor where it's due, to God and to those he's used in, in your life. So, so here's a challenge today. I, I, and it's not, it's not for anybody else, it's really for you. So I want you to take a moment today and, and, and send a message and honor somebody who's made a difference in your life. Because some of you have claimed credit where it is not yours. Some of you 
out of pride have assumed that you were the person and it was really somebody pouring life into you who led you to something that was very good. A great sacrifice to them. See, honor is always born out of humility. And when we're willing to live from the posture of humility, God will honor people through you, and then God will honor you. See, pride does things its own way, but humility submits to God. Pride does things its own way, but humility submits to God. And here's what I've learned. So you can't experience the kingdom of God doing things your own way. The only way you experience the kingdom of God is living in submission to the king. Some of us today, we've never experienced that. And it's not that your way is bad. It's not an issue of good or bad. It's not an issue of you figuring out what's right and wrong. It's an issue of of pride and humility, are you willing to submit to him? Because sometimes his wisdom looks way outside the block. What? Forgive my enemies? God, they've hurt me. No, forgive them because that will guard your heart from bitterness. Be generous. Be generous. Why, God? I don't want to let go of the things that I'm holding on to. Be generous because it postures you with an open hand. And I can bless you if you're willing to be a blessing. Stop doing things your own way. Submit to the king and embrace the culture of the kingdom. And I promise you, you will reap the benefits of living in that kingdom. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.